everyone, and welcome to Halfway Expert. I'm Dr. Paul Moffat. I have a PhD in medieval literature and an inflated sense of my own intelligence. When I finished my PhD, I had a feeling that I now had the research skills to become an expert in any subject. That feeling passed. But every episode of Halfway Expert, I do my best to fake it. I spend a week researching a topic and then invite an actual expert on to set me straight. That makes me a halfway expert. This episode, I'm happy to invite Dr. Jennifer Francis as part of my short season on climate science and climate change. Uh, Hello, welcome here. Thank you very much. Hello. Before we start, uh, let me tell you a little bit about yourself. You are enthusiastic about sailing, and you, in the early 80s, you spent five years circumnavigating the Earth, which, by the way, is amazing, uh, and seeing the Arctic for yourself. You spent a summer there, which sparked a lasting interest that eventually led to your current research specialization on the effects of Arctic warming on the rest of the world. You have a BS in meteorology from San Jose University, and a PhD in atmospheric science from the University of Washington. You are currently a research professor at Rutgers University in the Department of Marine and Coastal Sciences. Actually, that's not true anymore. Oh, no. Okay. No, I have a new job. I am now a senior scientist at the Woods Hole Research Center in Falmouth, Massachusetts. All right. Being a research professor meant that you focused, as it sounds like, on research and didn't uh, teach undergraduate classes, is that right? Um, it's true that I focused on research, but I did teach Okay. as well. But now in as a scientist in a research center, you would be even more uh, entirely focused on research now? Yes, yes. Okay. Your research has focused on the Arctic since the 90s, uh, and for a while you were focused on the Arctic directly, But for the last five or 10 years or so, you've shifted your focus more and more to the effect of the Arctic on the rest of the world. You've also shifted your focus recently towards science communication. Uh, In addition to dozens of scientific papers on climate change in the Arctic, you've also written for the Washington Post, Scientific American, you've done any number of radio and TV interviews, and really that shift seems to have begun around uh, 2012 or so, it seems to me. Is that right? That's right. Yes, it is. All right. Is there anything that we're missing to get a sense of you and your history? I think that's sufficient. Okay. Field notes. A sense of your general field. I assume most listeners are aware that meteorology is the study of the weather. Meteorology has subfields, most notably, usually we talk about atmospheric chemistry and atmospheric physics, and is itself a branch of the wider field of atmospheric science, which is what's written on your PhD. Meteorology is fundamentally uh, an interdisciplinary field that focuses on weather, that is to say, the immediate or short-term atmospheric conditions in a specific time and place. Meteorology focuses especially on prediction or forecasting of the weather, Whereas the difference between meteorology and climatology is a difference of scale and timeline. It's the difference kind of between mood and a personality. Meteorology is about right now in the immediate future. 
climatology is about trends or patterns of the right nows all put together. Yep, that sounds good. Climatology is not necessarily about climate change, but practically, since the climate is observably changing, it seems like that must dominate climatology. Um, I'd say these days there's certainly been a shift towards that as the climate has been changing so fast. But historically, uh, climatology has been more about studying um, the average conditions that exist at any one place in, in season um, and the sort of habitat associated with the atmospheric conditions. Okay. And we can kind of, it seems to me like we can roughly divide climatology into two categories, and it, I imagine that individuals work on both sides of these, but it seems to me like there is uh, climatology that focuses on causes, what causes the climate, why have there been droughts in California, why is the coast generally wet, and there is climatology that focuses on effects, similar questions, but from the opposite perspective. The sea ice is melting, what are the effects of that? not just on the climate, but also on the economy, on agriculture, on fisheries. Is that accurate? Yeah, I'd say there's also another branch, which is looking way back in time and trying to piece together what the Earth looked like, you know, thousands to millions of years ago. So that's mm. a whole other branch of climate science. Okay. And it seems to me like your uh, focus is increasingly on the effects. Is that right? Yes, the causes and the effects, I'd say. Okay. Um, your focus is on the Arctic, uh, and in your, it seems like in your most recent papers especially, you're not concerned so much with arguing about whether the climate of the Arctic is changing, that's factual and it's not arguable, and your research emphasis doesn't seem like it's so much on the evidence of why it's changing as much as it is on the effects of the changing on the mid-latitudes, which is to say, what's the effects of the changing Arctic on the places that aren't the Arctic? That's correct. Does the mid-latitudes include like the tropics? No. No. The tropics are basically north and south of the equator, roughly 25 degrees. I mean, technically it's 23 and a half degrees, but um, the tropics are, have very different characteristics and behaviors and weather patterns from the mid-latitudes, which are dominated by winds from the west and frequent um, frontal passages and, and changes in air mass, so cold and warm um, oscillations in, in different air masses. And the tropics basically are uh, dominated by east winds and very consistent uh, temperatures. The tropics are east winds even on both sides of the equator? I thought the wind direction of the wind was connected to the rotation of the earth. Is that not right? Well, you're, you're, the first statement is wrong and the second <laughs> statement is right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so the tropics have what are called the trade winds. Okay. And both north and south of the equator, they are from the east. Okay. Okay. Hi, it's Paul here, interrupting the podcast to tell you something I'm very excited about. When I'm not hosting podcasts, I teach English literature at university, and I just started a new online school to teach English literature. If you like reading and studying and understanding and thinking deeply about literature, but going to university is not 
desirable or practical for you right now, come study with me. I have five courses already planned out and more to come. The first one, studying Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, begins in the first week of February. You can find out more, including how to register, at clockworksacademy.com. All right, back to the show. Now it's time for You're the Expert about your specialization. So, the Arctic. What is the Arctic? And this, I think, this seems like a deceptively simple question to which I have found more than one possible answer depending on how we want to define things. You're absolutely correct there. There are there are many definitions of the Arctic based on what you're interested in. So, for example, if you're interested in um, the hydrologic cycle, which is the freshwater cycle of the Earth, then you would define the Arctic according to all of the watersheds that drain into the Arctic Ocean. But if you're interested in sea ice, for example, you would define the Arctic as being the area where sea ice may occur. Um, And just in a pure map sense, um, generally the Arctic is north of the Arctic Circle, which is 66 and two-thirds degrees of latitude. So it really does depend on um, what your question is that you're interested in asking and, um, you know, and and what what the what topic you're you're interested in. So you're correct that there's no one definition. Uh, by the way, speaking of the uh, latitude, this is something that our my listeners might not know that the latitude of the Arctic Circle actually moves a little bit because the Earth's axial tilt is moving a little bit, which happens because of the tides that make the Earth's tilt a little wonky. It'll tilt back again in about 41,000 years, but the Arctic Circle is drifting north a little bit right now. Is that, that right? is true, and it's <laughs> um, and the reason it moves is because the Arctic Circle is the southernmost latitude where there's six months of darkness during the winter time. Right. So it's about where you. It's about the sun. It's yes. visible from the Earth. Right. Right. In ecological terms, the Arctic's usually defined by the boreal forest tree line. Uh, so Arctic is tundra and boreal forest is subarctic. And in climatic definition that I found, that I'm very interested in seeing whether this uh, checks out, <laughs> is that the Arctic is the 10 degree Celsius July isotherm, which means the area where the warmest mean air temperature does not exceed 10 degrees Celsius. Again, that's another definition, depending on what you're interested in studying. Hmm. And you're, uh, you focus a lot on sea ice. So for you, is sea ice the important, the most important characteristic for Arctic? Um, I've studied a lot of aspects of the Arctic. So um, it, it's not that important to me what the definition of the Arctic is. Okay. It really is based. I'm really more interested in the, you know, the actual phenomenon that I'm looking at at that time. So um, I'd say my definition varies depending on what I'm looking looking at and studying. Right. If the climatic definition of the Arctic is the 10 degree Celsius uh, isotherm, as the climate changes, is the climatic 
Arctic shrinking? Yes, it would be on that, based on that definition. Hmm. So let's get into Arctic warming a little bit. Uh, the Arctic warms much faster than the rest of the world does uh, as climate changes. You call, this is called Arctic amplification. The Arctic amplification is the amount which the warming in the Arctic is more than it is elsewhere. So more amplification means a bigger difference between how much the Arctic is warming and how much the rest of the world is warming. Is that right? That's right. And the reason the Arctic that Arctic amplification happens is partly because of what's called positive feedback. Positive meaning it continues in the same direction, not meaning that it's good. Uh, so the weather gets warmer, some sea ice melts, but the sea ice was white, so the ocean, and now the ocean's black, so more radiation's being absorbed in the region than used to be. That means it's getting warmer, which means more sea ice melts, which exposes more black ocean. Meanwhile, the ice thawing and evaporating creates moister air. Water vapor is a greenhouse gas. Moister air retains more heat than drier air does. Meanwhile, the ice contains frozen carbon, so when it thaws, it releases more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which further exacerbates the greenhouse effect, and that means even more ice melts. Is that right? That's correct. And another way to think of it is, an, is uh, like a vicious cycle. So you start the system moving in one direction and all of these processes that you just mentioned and plus a bunch of others um, make it move in that direction even more than it did in its initial um, movement. So that's, the, uh, that, that's really the definition of a positive feedback. You're right. This is a, one of the questions that uh, comes up around the warming Arctic is a lot of times in popular conversations about the Arctic, we hear science or in what the layman hear from scientists about the Arctic is like talking about slowing the thaw. And people might wonder, is there any chance of refreezing the Arctic? But no, right? Not as long as we keep increasing our emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. There's really no hope of doing that. We no. might be able to do it on a temporary basis, but we can't expect it to <laughs> continue right. while we keep keep thickening the blanket around the Earth. So uh, let's talk a little bit about now the jet stream. This is seems like your uh, particular focus most recently the air is kind of like a blanket. When it's warmer, it expands, and that makes the blanket thicker. And then air flows downhill from high-pressure warm spots to low-pressure cold spots, and that creates wind. But the Earth mm -hmm. spins, so the wind moves to the right, if you're imagining sitting on the equator looking down towards the Arctic. Uh, and this fast ribbon of wind is what the jet stream is. Is that right? Yep, that's good. So... Warmer Arctic air makes a difference in pressure between makes the difference in pressure between the Arctic and the equator less, which makes the wind slower, which weakens the jet stream. And when the jet stream is weaker, that means it's more easily deflected by mountains, warm air from the earth, whatever. Like it's if you imagine a stream of water, the faster it's moving, the more it's going in the direction it's going, and the less likely it is to be pushed off course by obstacles. So that means that when the Arctic gets warmer, the jet stream gets wavier because it's pushed off course more. That's right. Um, 
Big waves move more slowly, small waves move more quickly. So quick small waves mean quick changes in weather in a small geographical area. Big slow waves mean a big geographical area that keeps its weather for a long time. Yep. Is that right? Yes, it is. So all of this makes logical sense, but that doesn't, having said that, doesn't mean it's being measured conclusively. So one of the things that you do is actually measure it. Is the jet stream becoming wavier as we expect it to? Actual wind is very swirly and complicated. So how do you actually measure it? <laughs> well, that's the $64 million question. But um, <laughs> so we're working on many different ways to measure this aspect of the jet stream that really people hadn't paid much attention to before. And we have a variety of different metrics that we've developed. Um, and some of them are quite simple. For example, just measuring how far, how far north and how far south a wave in the jet stream is on any given day and keeping track of that um, north-south difference every single day and seeing if overall that, um, that distance is getting larger or smaller over time. And we've been able to find that, um, indeed, in certain areas, there's clear evidence that we're seeing these big waves occur more often. So, and then there are more sophisticated ways of doing it, where um, we have a, a metric that we call sinuosity, which we stole from the research community that measures rivers. Right. So, um, a river... If you start in one point on a river and look at another point farther downstream, that river can either be straight, in which case the distance between those two points is as small as it can be. But if the, the river is very windy and you measure the length of the river, of course, it's going to be a much longer distance. And so right. that, that difference, that ratio, um, is called sinuosity. So we can do the same thing with the jet stream in the atmosphere. And so that's you know another example of the kinds of metrics that we're using. And then there's others that are even more sophisticated than that. <laughs> All right. In terms of measuring the uh, trend day to day, one of the, I mean, how do you know whether, one of the things, one of the differences between weather and climate, right, is weather is, it rained yesterday, it was dry today, it changes from one minute to the next uh, in small uh, time frames. Climate is about long-term changes. How do you decide what is the long-term that's significant? Because three rainy days isn't a climate, but a year of rain is. How do you, what's the, <laughs> how do you decide the difference? Right, so another aspect of our research is trying to measure whether in fact um, weather patterns across say the United States are becoming more persistent or not because that's what we would expect to see based on the increased frequency of these large waves in the jet stream that you so nicely described. So one of the things that we've developed is uh, a metric that we call long duration events. Um, and so we have looked at this in several different ways. One is to take actual weather station measurements at various cities across the United States, and we measure how many days in a row it's either dry 
or there's some rainfall measured. And we look at just the cases of when it's, say, four or more days in a row and how often that happens in a year or in a decade. And we can then track how often these long duration events occur and whether there's any change in the frequency of these long duration events based on something like the precipitation. Where we can also do a similar thing um, looking at large scale patterns in the atmosphere and we can measure how many days in a row the atmosphere stays in one pattern and mm. again keep track of the number of times in a year say that the atmosphere stays in one pattern for more than four or five six days you can pick a threshold so we were getting at it in different ways and in both of those cases that i just mentioned we're seeing definite increasing trends overall in the frequency of these long duration events hmm. You also uh, have talked about extreme weather events, hurricanes, for example. Warmer water means more humid air, which means higher sea levels, which means more and stronger hurricanes. This isn't disputed, right? So the question is, uh, is the Arctic wind have a, a uh, factor in steering the hurricanes that once they're more and stronger, where do they go? And it would make sense with the idea of the wavier jet stream that the hurricanes are going to end up in places where the jet stream is moving slower. And so the hurricane's going to sit where it is for a longer time. Is that right? Well, we believe that that is a, a reasonable thing to expect. It's a very difficult um, question to answer satisfactorily because um, you know, you've got only a few cases of these recent hurricanes that are behaving erratically, um, such as Sandy, which took that crazy left turn and went into New Jersey. Um, hurricane Harvey is another example where the hurricane just sat in one place for days and dumped almost six feet of rain on Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. And then just recently, Hurricane Florence did a similar thing where it had an unusual track across the Atlantic Ocean, and then it got to the coast and just stayed in one place. And in all of those cases, there is evidence that the, um, the behavior of the jet stream during those hurricanes was very consistent with the kinds of changes that we think the Arctic is going to bring to the jet stream. But as you probably know, it's very difficult to estimate how much any one factor may have played in um, in creating those atmospheric conditions that steered those hurricanes. So right. that is a very active area of research these days, trying to estimate the influence of not just the Arctic, but all aspects of climate change on specific individual extreme weather events. And when I talked to uh, Louise Arnaud, who is a PhD student in hydrology, um, we talked about hindcasting and what she does for flood prediction in the short term in Europe is, you know, experiment, test not against the future for which you would have to wait a long time, but against the past by checking the computer model against the data that exists in the past to see whether the model accurately predicts what we observe to have happened in the past. Is that something that also is uh, useful 
um, methodology for, for example, talking about steering hurricanes? Can you use a model and then look at what hurricanes have done in the past and see how well the model matches up? Yes. In fact, you can take it a step further and you can use a model and give it conditions of, say, the ocean temperatures maybe 40, 50 years ago and see how that same hurricane would have developed under um, under those past conditions before climate change really started to rear its ugly head and then compare that to what actually happened. And that may offer some clues about the impacts of climate change. Right. So you can take a Hurricane Sandy and see how it would have behaved if everything was as it was uh, 50 years ago. Right. So the same amount of moisture in the atmosphere, for example, and, and sea surface temperatures and all of those things that were kind of climatology back then and are certainly not climatology anymore. But how much, how far back do we have reliable data? This is another question that arose talking about short-term flood prediction. Uh, in short-term flood prediction, the problem is that when there's a flood, the data gets worse. But everything from like your paper is wet to the roads are uh, blown out so people can't be physically there to measure it. Um, wouldn't there be a similar problem going back with, uh, like, wouldn't that problem still be a problem for your research? Well, it depends. I mean, some things we know quite well um, going back many decades, um, especially over the continents where there are people to measure, um, send up weather balloons and things like that. Um, certainly the data are much better after we started to launch satellites to measure all kinds of things in the atmosphere. So generally speaking, um, starting around 1979 is where a lot of studies begin because that's when we started to get a lot of information um, from satellites that get ingested into these global data sets of the atmosphere and also the ocean. So um but even before that, over continents and over areas where there were regular airplane flights and ship tracks and things like that, we have a pretty good sense of many aspects of the of the climate system, perhaps not very localized flooding events mm-hmm. and things like that, but certainly large-scale atmospheric patterns we can see very reliably. Um, so it really depends on, on which variable you're you need to have. I guess it makes sense. Like you might not know the River Thames was uh, moving at 30% faster velocity when it flooded, but you would know there was a hurricane. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, It kind of leads us into a topic that I kind of hate to go into, but I think we need to, and that's climate change denial. I kind of hate to go into it because I tend to think even giving voice to this kind of thing is dangerous. But when I talked, for example, to Stephanie Holmhofer about archaeology, we talked about pseudo-archaeology, things like Atlantis and ancient aliens and conspiracy theories. Your field is also prone to conspiracy theorists. Uh, Let's engage in that for a second. Sure. How do we know that climate change is anthropogenic? There are many, many ways that we know. Um, probably the best uh, the best tool that we have to 
um, to convince people that it's our doing and not um, some other factor is that we have these very, very sophisticated computer models that are based on very well understood physical principles and mathematical representations of those principles. And they are very good at at reproducing what has happened in past climates. And we can compare their simulations to actual data going back um, very far in time. So you can tell those computer models about changes in the output of the sun, for example, and changes in the composition of the atmosphere and even movements of continents. You can tell them all kinds of things like when volcanoes erupted. Um, and so we can run these models based on just telling them about natural shifts in the climate system, things like those volcanic eruptions and solar variability, and then ask them to simulate what's happened um, to the temperature of the earth. And what we find is that they, they reproduce, as I said, the, the observations going back in time up until about the 1950s or so. And then they are much, much cooler than the, than the observations are going up to present day. But then if you tell the computer models about what's been happening with the concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and changes in the land surface and things, other things that humans have done, then the computer models do an excellent job of reproducing the global temperature. And so that tells us that if we had not increased the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, owing mostly to the burning of fossil fuels, we would not have seen the the very rapid warming that has occurred in the atmosphere just in the last 40, 50 years. Hmm. And it, um, greenhouse gases is a, you know, we hear about it all the time, but uh, am I right in my understanding that how that actually works is that CO2 has a higher specific heat than nitrogen? So the higher concentration of CO2 means that the atmosphere cools and uh more slowly or no. am i crazy that's not okay <laughs> okay what is so there's naturally carbon dioxide in the atmosphere there are naturally a bunch of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere the reason they're called greenhouse gases is because let's go back to the big picture of the earth's energy balance so the sun's energy comes in it is at a relatively high frequency of light, so very short distances between the waves of the light that comes from the sun, and that's because the sun is so darn hot. It's like 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, more or less. And that very short wavelength energy passes right through our atmosphere and comes down to the Earth, except when it hits a cloud and then it gets reflected, or if it hits ice or snow. But about two-thirds of it gets absorbed by the Earth's surface. And that's why um, the Earth is as warm as it is in terms of the sun's um, effect on the Earth. So the Earth also emits energy, light, if you will. We just can't see that light. It's called infrared. And we do have, um, you can, people have probably heard of infrared cameras and things like that. So basically all they're doing 
is they're able to sense this different kind of light that just has a longer wavelength. So they're just bigger light waves, if you will. And our eyes are not capable of seeing it, but we can build sensors that are. So it just so happens that greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, for example, water vapor, ozone, there's a whole bunch of them that are in the atmosphere are very good at absorbing infrared light. And so what happens is they absorb that infrared light and they send it right back to the surface and act like a blanket in our atmosphere by doing that. So by increasing the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, notably carbon dioxide, we're also seeing increasing water vapor because of the warming atmosphere, we're really increasing the thickness of the blanket on the earth. And it is really analogous with putting another blanket on your bed. Your body temperature stays the same, but you feel warmer when you put another Mm. blanket on your bed. And the same exact thing is happening. So it's really all about different wavelengths of light and not about heat capacity at all. Okay. (laughs) So, okay, but back to climate denial. I read an article by a guy who said your findings were bad and it was evidence that peer review is bad. He had a lot of physics I don't understand, but he posted it on his blog and it seemed convincing. How, how does a layperson decide who to believe? Well, I would ask a layperson to go to any uh, textbook or peer-reviewed article on these topics and believe the peer-reviewed Um, information and not one person who probably has no published paper about his or her ideas that are basically counter to mainstream science and some of these physical concepts that we've understood for literally over a hundred years. And they've been studied, they've been tested, they've been applied. And what that person is um, insinuating Basically, if, if there's no published peer-reviewed paper to support what he or she has said, then um, you can't put much much salt on it. But, like, I'm, I'm being disingenuous in my argument, but uh, does, he would say, there's a conspiracy. <laughs> How do you, like, if, if there was a conspiracy, wouldn't all the peer-reviews all get together and decide that they were going to agree with each other? Well, if anybody has been through the peer review process, you'll know (laughs) that there's absolutely no conspiracy. It's a very difficult process to get through. You have no idea who is reviewing your paper. Um, And oftentimes the reviews come back and they're quite harsh. And Mm -hmm. you have to go back and forth two, three, even four times to satisfy the reviewers that, um, that what you're writing is acceptable. So... It is not an easy process to get through. I mean, and this is like, I just felt like I needed to point this out because I did actually read this art blog post by this guy who, you know, was making an argument that his blog post that no one has checked up on is more trustworthy than a corrupt peer review by, uh, you know, a conspiracy. And just is similar to the conversation we had about, uh, I had about pseudo-archaeology that the a massive red flag uh, is people who claim that there's a conspiracy against them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Because well, I get some very wild ideas at my way, and um, believe me, they are there's some really creative people out there. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's time for peer review, or I tried my best, but I still do not understand. I have a few uh, end questions of things that I did this research and I don't get. Okay. Um, one of them is kind of a holdover. When I had my conversation with Louise Alpno about uh, hydrometeorology, she talked a lot about the North Atlantic Oscillation and what that the effect of that is on Europe. And I asked her what causes the North Atlantic Oscillation, and she said, uh, I don't know, ask a meteorologist. So mm -hmm. what causes the North Atlantic Oscillation? So the North Atlantic Oscillation is really just an index. And all it tells you is how strong the jet stream is going across the North Atlantic for the most part. I really dislike the North Atlantic Oscillation myself okay. because... It is, it's a metric, but there are many things that can affect it. And so when it's either, I mean, it, you generally talk about the, we call it the NAO, either being positive or negative. When it's positive, it means the jet stream is quite strong going across the North Atlantic and thus um, Western Europe tends to have stormy conditions. And then when it's negative, um, the jet stream tends to be weak and so... Um, you tend not to have very stormy conditions there. But the problem is that the, the way the NAO is measured is usually looking at the difference in surface atmospheric pressure between Iceland and the Azores. Mm -hmm. That's the simplest metric. And there are some more complicated ways of doing it, but that's generally the idea. And the problem is that there are these semi-permanent pressure systems. It tends to be low near Iceland and it tends to be high near the Azores. But those highs and lows don't necessarily sit right on top of Iceland and the Azores. They can shift east and west. And so if the center um, of either one of those shifts east or west, you might have a negative, say, NAO, but the weather associated with it is very, very different um, mm -hmm. depending on where that center is located. The other problem is that the factors that affect low pressure over Iceland um, are very different from the factors that affect high pressure over the Azores. They're completely <laughs> independent of each other, almost, not completely, but there, there's a lot of differences in the factors. And so you can get a positive or negative AO for very different reasons. And so it's, it's, it's an index that kind of balls up a whole bunch of stuff into one number. <laughs> and you really can't say too much um, other than when it's positive, it tends to be stormy in, in say, France and the UK. Right. Okay. Um, how important is science communication? I don't think we can overestimate the importance <laughs> of science communication. It is absolutely critical. And I think one of the reasons we're finding ourselves in this era of society where science is being doubted or even discredited is because basically scientists have not done a very good job of, of explaining to the general public, who, by the way, is generally funding the work that we do, <laughs> um, 
as to why what we do is so important and why it matters to them. And so I think it's, you know, the onus is on scientists, not all scientists, because not all scientists are good at explaining their work, but we all need to try to do a better job and get some training in taking what we do and making it understandable and relevant to the general public and the media. Um, I think this is a huge, a huge challenge, but I think we're also making a lot of progress. And I also think that the media is understanding that they have to play a role as well and reach out to scientists like you are today and, and do with your program in, uh, you know, taking some of these concepts and making them understandable and getting them out there for people to hear about and learn about. Should research be motivated by curiosity or by problem solving, do you think? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's, I think both of those reasons are totally valid and important. All right. Um, I've read about this plan to slow climate change by blocking out the sun. Uh, is that as terrible an idea as I think it is? Yes. <laughs> Yes. I mean, we've already screwed up the atmosphere and the climate system. And this is just another um, another aspect of that. The goal is perhaps um, a good one, but there's so many inadvertent um, changes that could happen, unexpected things that we um, are not able to foresee. Um, for example, if we, let's say, um, one country or one group of countries decided to experiment and put a bunch of particles up in the upper atmosphere to reflect more sunshine, the idea being that um, that would help cool the earth temporarily. Well, what happens then if there's a massive drought across Europe, for example, and some scientist is able to run a model and show that it was the result of these particles being put up there and it changed the atmospheric circulation and caused this drought that caused billions of dollars and, you know, whatever damage it did. So there's no, there's all kinds of scenarios like that you can think of that are, um, that could result from trying to do something, something like that. Um, the other reason I think it's a bad idea is it's expensive and it would take away resources from addressing the real underlying disease, mm. which that being switching away from fossil fuels and putting fewer emissions of carbon and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which is going to be um, an expensive transition transition in our energy, um, our energy society. And, you know, we need to put all of our resources into achieving that as quickly as possible. I mean, you've started to answer what was written down to the next question, which is just, so what do we do? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of things that have to happen simultaneously and as soon as possible. That's one of them. It's already going on, despite um, what Washington, D.C. Um, states and their actions. Um, but it's happening at local and state levels. We're seeing all kinds of renewable energy projects um, kicking off and and providing jobs and earning a lot of money for governments, local governments, and also um, reducing our dependence on fossil fuels. It's happening even faster in Europe and other countries. So um, that is happening, but we can't 
take our eye off that ball because it needs to happen much faster and much on a much larger scale. But at the same time, we have to realize that there's a lot more change in our future that we cannot prevent. And so we have to get our heads around where those impacts are going to be. Sea levels are going to continue to rise for decades to come, probably even longer. Um, we're going to see more extreme weather events. We're going to see more effects on um, agriculture and damaged infrastructure, droughts, um, flooding events. We're, we're going to see a lot more of these. So we really need to uh, strengthen our infrastructure, um, get better plans in place at the local level to help people um, deal with these situations when they arise, um, evacuation orders, evacuation um, at ways to get out of harm's way, um, prepare for shortages in fresh water in areas that are prone to drought, um, look at changing what kinds of crops are being grown in places where precipitation patterns are changing. So it's, it's got to be this parallel path where we're addressing the underlying disease being those um, emissions of carbon and other greenhouse gases, but we also have to get ready for all these extremes and other changes that we know are coming our way. Hmm. Um, I would love to talk to you for a while about uh, what sailing around the world is like, but uh, I'm going to wrap up and let you go now with just two more questions. One is who should, who or what topic or field should I talk to next on Halfway Expert? Uh, have you talked to somebody about sea level rise? I have not talked to someone about sea level rise. All right. Well, you should do that. Um, I could recommend a couple different people on that. There's a guy named Bob Kopp, K-O-P-P, at Rutgers University. Okay. Or you could also talk to Brenda Urquitzel. She's at the Union of Concerned Scientists, and they just issued a very good report um, about a year ago that really looks at um, communities individually and how they're going to be affected in the mm. near term. And sort of wrapping that into insurance and um, economic um, issues related to sea level rise. You might even mm -hmm. want to talk to a military person because they're all over this problem. A lot of, especially the Navy, a lot of their facilities are um, right. you know, on low coastal areas, places like Norfolk, Virginia, um, so there's a guy named um, David Titley, T-I-T-L-E-Y. He's now a professor at Penn State University, and I think he'd probably have a really good um, perspective on that. So, uh -huh. you know, and that's something that is undeniably happening. It's accelerating. Um, we've learned a lot about why it's happening. Um, so I think you could have a good show all about that. All I right. think um, talking to someone about agricultural changes would be good, too. Um, mm. you, might, you might look to the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Um, they have a, a pretty big department there that focuses on that because they're right in the, in the heartland. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, and last of all, thank you so very much for joining me. Just uh, where can people find and follow you and your work? Well, the best place is my website, which is jenniferafrancis.com. All right. Thank you again so very much. Uh, 
uh, welcome. And uh, goodbye. Have a uh, great holiday. You're sailing off. Are you? You, know, you <laughs> sailed there. You you said you were going overseas. Are you sailing? Yes. All yeah. right. We'll have a fantastic time. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. You bye. too. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on Halfway Expert. If you would like to contact me, you can find me at halfwayexpert at gmail.com and you can send me anything you want to there, including, but not limited to, corrections to this episode, which I will correct next episode if you spot any, or suggestions of topics I should be talking about in a future episode. You can talk to me on Twitter at halfexpert. You can find, listen to, and find out about previous episodes on our new website, clockworksacademy.com slash halfwayexpert. If you like this show, please support it on Patreon at patreon.com slash clockworkscast. You can talk to me on Twitter at halfexpert. On that webpage, you'll find a bibliography of things I read and watched and studied while I was preparing for this episode, as well as a bibliography of suggested texts that Jennifer has kindly sent to me. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Dr. Paul Moffat. Trust me, I'm an expert. <laughs>